Welcome to Shit You Wish Your Building Did, the must-watch show for transforming your commercial spaces into smart buildings. Today, we're diving into the world of building performance standards with Cliff from the Institute for Market Transformation, exploring how standards like Local Law 97 fit into the wider landscape. Will standards really drive wide-scale building decarbonisation, and what does that mean for smart building technology? Join us for this insightful conversation with Cliff. Remember, if you like our channel, there is a button specifically for that. Click subscribe and stay updated with our latest episodes. Ready to transform your building with smart technology? Let's jump right in. I'll, I'll do. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. And Cliff Majerzik from IMT. Welcome. Thank you very much, Jim. Glad to be here. Great. And we're really glad to have you as well because, you know, I've been reading some of your stuff and it's super interesting. So, yeah, I've really been trying to get you on the podcast uh, for a couple of months and really glad that you're here. I mean, tell us about your work. Tell us about IMT. Um, IMT, the Institute for Market Transformation, is a nonprofit. Our mission is to decarbonize buildings, uh, improve the performance of buildings as a way to help everyone, regardless where they live, work, or play. So very much equity is part of our mission and to fight climate change. Uh, And we do that by partnering with businesses, with uh, governments to develop policies, both at the corporate level and at the government level, to drive decarbonization, to create sustained demand for decarbonized, high-performing buildings. And um, there are a lot of opportunities. The building sector has terrific return on investment opportunities Mm -hmm. to improve building performance. So by better aligning incentives, by uh, addressing externalities, uh, policies, well-designed policies can really move the market, whether at the corporate level or at the government level. Yep. Brilliant. And that's why I wanted you to come on today, of course, to talk about policy and um, in particular standards. And I, uh, I read a recent Axios article where you were quoted and you were talking specifically about Local Law 97 and you described it as the biggest driver of investment in decarbonizing buildings in any city in the US. So I just wanted to you know, get your opinion on that. Like why, why do you think that it's such a big driver? It's a big driver for a number of reasons. One is just there is a real problem in the market with misaligned incentives. Situations where the landlord uh, may uh, be responsible for making improvements to the building, but the tenant is paying for energy costs. Uh, maybe there are multiple tenants and the uh, building is master metered. And so each of them doesn't pay, um, doesn't benefit very much if they make an improvement in their space. Um, and so because of the sort of perfect storm of misaligned incentives, you have a lot of situations where people sort of throw up their hands and say, we're just going to keep doing things the way we've done them before, even though there are better practices, newer technologies that could greatly improve the performance of buildings. There are also problems of uh, first mover disadvantage. Um, It's a very fragmented industry. Um, Almost every contractor has different subcontractors that they share with their competitors. So it's difficult to be a first mover. So there's a real collective action problem. Uh, and policies are a great way to overcome that collective action problem. So Local Law 97, which is a building performance standard, it's New York City's building performance mm-hmm. standard, it was adopted in 2019, 
Uh, it uh, sets bold goals for decarbonizing buildings, uh, as do the other 12 building performance standards around the United States. Uh, and building owners um, must work with their tenants to achieve those goals. And if they don't, then there are financial consequences. As a, as a result of that, um, building owners are very focused on this, as are their investors and their lenders, and to a lesser degree, some of their tenants. And so this is really driving investment. One uh, estimate by a task force of industry experts um, projected that through 2030, there will be a $20 billion investment opportunity for products and services to decarbonize buildings in New York City alone. So mm -hmm. that's a, a huge dollar figure. Obviously, New York's the biggest uh, city in the country, but that's just one city. And um, that shows the real financial power of building performance standards. And that money will produce returns on investment as the building owners uh, and their tenants are investing in uh, improvements that are going to lower utility bills. It will also benefit jurisdictions by creating jobs and jobs that have to be done in the building. They can't be offshore. Mm. No, th great explanation. One thing, you know, obviously I'm coming from Europe based in, uh, in Sweden. One thing, you know, I guess, as, as the European perspective, it's difficult to understand why that the LL97 then gets picked up by other juris jurisdictions outside of New York, is it because that they people are looking at it and thinking, you know, this is the right approach? Yes, I think it is. And in fact, New York was not the first. Um, th three jurisdictions adopted building performance standards in rapid succession. Washington, D.C., New York City, and Washington State all adopted building performance standards in 2019. Uh, and now we've had a, a series of additional states mm -hmm. and cities. We now have four states and nine localities that have adopted building performance standards across the United States, most recently Seattle in December. And um, yes, I mean, I think they recognize that building performance standards are the most powerful policy for driving change in the built environment. Uh, and the built environment in cities like New York, the built environment can account for more than 70% of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. So if you want to address, as a city, if you want to address your greenhouse gas emissions, you need to address your buildings. Uh, and uh, building performance standards uh, have great promise to decarbonize our buildings uh, and uh, be completely compatible with a growing, prospering economy and real estate sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, and then how does it fit into the wider landscape of of other um, standards, for example, like uh, U.S. federal building standards and also SEC climate disclosures? Sure. Well, the federal standard is a standard for federally owned buildings. So um, building performance standards are powerful in that they apply to all large buildings over a certain size, um, including you know, commercial buildings and residential buildings. And typically that would be a, a floor of like 25 or 50,000 square feet. Um, the federal building performance standard applies to uh, almost all federal buildings, but it's just federally owned buildings. So it's a, a small part of the, of the total mix. But it's, it's great that the, build, the federal government is leading by example. They're showing that they are doing it with their own buildings. They're decarbonizing their own buildings. And at the same time, they, President Biden is leading the National Building Performance Standard Coalition, which is uh, a coalition of state and local governments totaling more than 43. 
And uh, those governments are all pledged. They either already have building performance standards in place or they're pledged to putting them in place in an equitable fashion. So working with their community, especially their frontline communities, to make sure that these, these policies are creating jobs and opportunities and, and treating fairly uh, all of their residents uh, and that they're not leading to displacement. Um, and, you know, that's very much in line with the Biden administration's Justice 40 uh, commitment, which is that 40 percent of the investment to address climate change will benefit frontline communities. So um, the that policy um, very much complements the state and local policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in, in particular, also because uh, federal government buildings, because of the federal sovereignty, are exempt from state and local laws. So mm-hmm. we, we need that um, to make sure that everybody's moving in tandem. Uh, and moving the market. Um, and the federal government is the biggest tenant in this country. Mm-hmm. So yep. they have enormous market power. Also, uh, you, you asked about the, the Securities and Exchange mm-hmm. Commission. They yeah. have proposed a climate risk disclosure rule that would uh, do two things. It would require that um, all publicly traded companies have to disclose, over a certain size, have to disclose their, um, their potential risk um, from climate change. Uh, and of course, that's physical risk. You know, what is, do I have uh, buildings in low-lying areas that could be uh, particularly affected by hurricanes, say, uh, or wildfires or flooding or, you know, the many um, perils that climate change is driving, but also it's transition risk. Uh, and transition risk is what sort of risks um, am I as a company exposed to if uh the, our economy is reacting to climate change. And, and one of those reactions is building performance standards. Building performance standards are government's attempt to uh, react to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and, and respond and mitigate climate change. Uh, and so that's very much a climate risk, a, a climate transition risk. Uh, and the proposed SEC rule will require that companies disclose material risks. Uh, and, and no CEO or CFO wants to have to have a conversation on a quarterly earnings call about climate risks. So rather than having that conversation, they're going to look to address those risks proactively so that they can reduce those risks so they become immaterial. Uh, And so that is going to be a force multiplier for building performance standards. If they don't um, get their buildings to perform well, then they are going to be facing liabilities from building performance standards, and they're going to have to disclose those liabilities to their investors, mm-hmm. something that they don't want to do. So it's it, the two, again, work very well to drive transformation in the market. Yeah, I mean, I can see that as being a significant driver right? <clears throat> for, for change, absolutely. I wanted to ask, you know, about your perspective on how LL97 fits into like the wider, like more global foreign standards. So I'm thinking here in the EU, the uh, energy performance of buildings directive, and even in the UK, the uh, MIES. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure, yeah. I mean, the energy performance of buildings directive and the European example and the Australian example were enormously helpful to us here in the United States as we were developing our first benchmarking and transparency laws. And they also did help um, provide some um, basis as we were developing building performance standards. But I think the United States has now leapfrogged the rest of the world in terms of building performance standards. Uh, building performance standards actually have significant financial consequences for buildings that don't achieve minimum levels of performance. Uh, that is on the roadmap in the Europe, in Europe and, and in the UK. And, and I've been advising um, policy makers in those markets 
Uh, and they're, in Europe, they're referred to as minimum energy performance standards, and they're very much on the horizon. I think they'll be coming very quickly, but they're not in place yet. So until you have those minimum energy performance standards, the United States is ahead in terms yeah. of requiring higher levels of performance from existing buildings without requiring any sort of external trigger um, that uh, causes those policies to take effect. Now, you do have policies in Europe that require that buildings reach a certain level of performance before that they can be let out um, to, to tenants. Um, but in the United States, these policies uh, have date certain requirements. Even if the building is keeping the same tenants or is owner-occupied, it's still subject to requirement that it must improve its energy performance on a set schedule. And that schedule uh, with well-designed policies is known well into the future, 20, 30 years into the future, which means that building owners can um, factor that into their capital plans, uh, particular, particularly with respect to long-lived assets. If I'm going to invest in a heat pump that will last 20 or 30 years, I'd like to know that that heat pump will put this building on path to compliance over the life of that equipment. Uh, and so well-designed policies are giving building owners that certainty to make uh, capital improvements, knowing exactly how well their building will be required to perform, regardless of what happens in terms of their tenants or sales of the building. No, exactly. You need that long-term view to be able to commit capital and you know have that roadmap to really be confident, right, in the in the standards. Yeah, totally. That's right. Certainty is the friend of investment. Uncertainty is a hampers investment. Yeah. Do you think that? You know, just again, I suppose your opinion and looking specifically at LL97, do you think it's tough enough to drive, you know, wide scale building decarbonization? Yes, um, it has a uh, carbon price of $268 per ton of uh, CO2 equivalent above each building's uh, budget, carbon budget. Um, and that's a, a significant factor, especially when coupled with the disclosure requirements, both the SEC's proposed disclosure requirement and now the European Union has disclosure requirements that uh, apply globally to buildings, to companies with operations in Europe. Uh, California has put in place a similar law that will go into effect uh, in the coming years. Uh, so, uh, yes, I think that uh, building owners are very much taking local law, law 97 seriously uh, and thinking about things like, uh, performance-based leasing uh, to make sure that their interests are aligned with their tenants so that they're all working in concert to achieve those goals. Uh, and it, it, that has provided a really positive example for other jurisdictions, I think, in terms of making it so that the, the well-informed, uh, rational building owner will invest in improvements to their building mm. rather than just um, planning on paying um, whatever penalties. Mm. Yeah, and I get that kind of brings me on to my next question right, about um, return on investment. I mean, what do you think is the is the ROI for positioning, you know, as a building owner, for positioning your building as a high performance building? Well, the ROI has been good for many years. Um, and obviously, the pandemic has, has changed a lot of stuff. But in many cases, the pandemic has actually improved that ROI. Um, what you see is obviously you're getting a return on investment from lower utility bills. When you you're, say you're investing in better equipment, you're putting in heat pumps, replacing boilers, as an example, um, and you're, you're getting a return on investment from lower utility bills, but also you're getting a return on investment from um, lower vacancy rates because your tenants want to be in a high performing building. Um, and they, their employees want to be in a high-performing building. And, you know, if it, you, can, you can imagine from the perspective of a tenant CEO. He says, 
I have high performing, uh, high performing employees, a high performing company. Why wouldn't I want to be in a high performing building? Especially because my employees view that as a mark of how much I care about them. Because a high performing building not only has lower utility bills and has uh, lower greenhouse gas emissions, but it's also healthier. It's a better, more productive place for people to work. Uh, and so, you, you know, there were numerous studies, and uh, we have them cataloged on our website, imt.org, uh, that show that uh, Energy Star-labeled buildings, that's more energy-efficient buildings, have uh, higher uh, occupancy rates, higher rents per square foot, uh, and they sell for more per square foot. And that's when you control for the normal factors for age and location, um, for comparing Class A to Class A, that sort of thing. Um, and a similar study that actually looked at non-public information, things like tenant concessions for one company, found uh, similar results. You, you see um, higher ROI per square foot, even higher, even more than can be um, can be attributed to the lower utility costs and other savings uh, as a consequence um, of investments in energy efficiency. So in, in many cases, um, you know, we're seeing more than $2 uh, of return for every $1 invested in energy efficiency improvements. Now, as you go farther, as you go deeper um, and you're, you're deep decarbonizing buildings, and especially if you're doing things like taking out uh, heating equipment and putting in heat pumps, often the return on investment is not as attractive. Mm. But still, when you account for things like um, higher um, occupancy rates, uh, also potentially lower capitalization rates, which means the building is more valuable for every dollar it's generating because it's viewed as less risky, you're still, uh, in most cases, receiving uh, excellent returns. And those are bolstered now by federal incentives, uh, a variety of tax incentives and other incentives that were part of federal policy, most notably uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which passed more than a year ago. Those policies uh, are providing more generous tax deductions and tax incentives for buildings that are energy efficient uh, and investing in things like heat pumps. Mm. I've got uh, one, a couple more questions for you. I thought one, I'd be interested, you know, if you could you know, look from the perspective of, um, let's say, a technology vendor. You know, we get that we get quite a lot of people listening who who are probably, you know, selling software or, or services hardware. How would you feel about the kind of the the legislation standard landscape in the in the U.S.? Do you think that um, would you be confident that it's going to drive business? Would you, you know, do you, what 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 are your views on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that these policies um, are terrific policies for driving investment in um, new technologies and new innovative services to improve building performance. And one thing that's important to point out is these building performance standards are technology neutral. They're not saying you need to put in a heat pump here or LED lighting there. Right. They're just saying this building needs to achieve a minimum level of performance. And that's typically measured in things like greenhouse gas emissions or site energy use intensity. Uh, in some cases, there are multiple metrics. Uh, and so that means that whoever can build a better mousetrap, they can prosper. Um, they, they can um, sell it to the market. If it's actually producing better performance, then that product will succeed. Mm. Uh, and I think that's the way we want to go. We, we want performance-based policies, not prescriptive policies, so that we can allow the market to innovate. And we're not ex expecting that policymakers are going to understand technology mm. better than technologists. Uh, so, yeah, I think that 
Um, the existing 13 building performance standards, as well as the, the federal uh, building performance standard, are you know, driving the market. Um, and the fact that you have more than uh, 40 other jurisdictions, 40 jurisdictions around the United States that are committing to put in place these building performance standards, the fact that you have more than 50 benchmarking and transparency laws across the country, that you have these climate risk disclosure requirements uh, that have entered into force and are enter entering into force. Mm. These are all creating a real profit opportunity for people mm. who uh, are investing in new technologies to improve the performance of our buildings. And, and the market is responding. Um, I think that you see that um, those companies are, are migrating to markets that have these policies in place. Investors are encouraging their portfolio companies to do that. So, um, yes, I think that, you know, there's a lot of um, room for improvement. More jurisdictions can adopt policies. Existing policies can be improved. We have actually created a model building performance standard law that takes it, the best practices from, from all of the existing building performance standards and, and lessons learned uh, and puts them in a way that I think is very market-friendly, that is uh, real estate uh, aligned, that, that helps align landlords and tenants, uh, and that is performance-based, uh, and so is going to be really a solid foundation for um, investors uh, and uh, entrepreneurial companies to build on. Yeah, no, brilliant point. Um, interesting about those 40 jurisdictions then that are, have made commitments, because I was going to ask about that, like what does what the future look like? Are they... I mean, so, I mean, that would cover, I guess, the majority of, of, of the country, right? If, whence those are. Well, are it, it, it's not the majority. Uh, it, currently, I think it's um, well over 20% of the building stock of the United States is mm -hmm. in that group. Uh, includes, you know, the four states that have already adopted building performance standards, okay. as well as California, our biggest state. Yeah. Um, but there's still a lot of room for more jurisdictions to follow. Of course. Yeah. Good. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. I, I just want to leave or ask you one last question. Um, if there was one, you know, based on our conversation here, is there one thing that you would want people to take away um, today? What would it be? I think it would be that uh, policy is a powerful driver. There are, has been great movement in the market and um, great technologies, but because of these misaligned incentives, this real fragmentation, if we are serious about climate change, which we need to be because it's an existential threat, then we need to have serious policies that are really on pace to achieve the kind of bold climate commitments required to prevent catastrophic climate change. And that is across the economy. And when you're talking about buildings, the most powerful policy to drive change are building performance standards, mm -hmm. which need to be uh, in, developed uh, to complement building energy codes as well for, for new construction. Those two need to work hand in glove, um, but you need to have a suite of powerful policies and, and it will benefit um, your, your market, it'll benefit innovation, uh, it'll create jobs in your community. So there's a, a real win-win opportunity here and we're, IMT is, is happy to work with uh, governments and, and companies to work together. And we sort of serve as a bridge. Uh, they speak somewhat different languages mm -hmm. And we're eager to help them work together to put in place these great policies that will benefit everyone uh, and help us prevent climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess if people want to find out more about what IMT does, imt.org. They can That's find right, imt.org. And if you particularly are interested in our building performance standards, imt.org slash BPS. Perfect. 
And we have comparisons of all of the building performance standards around uh, the country. Actually, um, we've also worked on the one in Vancouver, Canada, um, a video explainer of what a building performance standard is, our model law, our model implementation guide, a whole wealth of resources on building performance standards there. Great. Cliff, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you. My pleasure, Jim. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And thanks to everyone for listening. See you on the next one. Bye-bye.